Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from Genesis how Noah finally heard from God after 120 years, and God called Noah, who was outside the ark, to come inside the ark with him. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the fact that you are the God of the Word of God. And Lord, that through this Word, you want to bring us to yourself, teach us about yourself, guide us and have us to be more like yourself. And so we pray that the Word this morning would have that effect as we study it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Genesis chapter 7, and we'll read here the first nine verses. Genesis chapter 7, verses 1 through 9, where it says, And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female. And of beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female. Of fowls also of the air by sevens, the male and the female. To keep seed alive upon the face of all the earth. For yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. And Noah did according unto all that the Lord commanded him. And Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. And Noah went in, and his sons and his wife, and his son's wife with him into the ark because of the waters of the flood, of clean beasts and of beasts that are not clean, and of fowls and of everything that creepeth upon the earth. There went in two and two unto Noah into the ark, the male and the female, as God commanded Noah. Now, here we are. So in our last study, we pictured this setting of chapter 7, verse 1. That's where we imagine that Noah was sitting down and he was looking at this massive structure of the ark. And we pictured that as he finished, he was there. There was the ark. He wiped his brow. He thought he'd just take a little time to look over the ark. There was the construction of the ark. It was all done now, and he was looking it over, and we can imagine him taking a final inspection, walking through the inside of the ark, looking it all over, looking at all those rooms, which are called cells or cabins, little rooms inside, looking over all the tar that was on the inside and the outside and that black watertight covering that spelled out safety. And then from the inside, he saw that running opening all along the top, about 18 inches uh, wide, that opening that ran underneath the roof that served to both give the light inside the ark and also to create that wonderful ventilation system. And then outside, as he went outside, we can imagine him walking around. And what did he see when he saw this? He essentially saw a box. I mean, that's what the ark was. It was just a box. No keel, no rudder. Just a big, giant box. And if we considered that the cubit is 18 inches, then Noah looked at a structure that was 450 feet long. It was pretty long. And 75 feet wide and 45 feet tall. It was about as tall as a little bit more than a four-story building. And if you wanted to build a cube and have the maximum volume inside that cube, the ratio that's given here between the length, the width, and the depth, that's the optimal. This ratio gives you the maximum volume inside a cube. I don't know if Noah knew that, figured it out, didn't really matter. But if you made any other cube of different ratios between the height, the width, and the depth, then you would have a cube that had less volume than the arc had their internal volume. So, well, God figured that out, so that was good. 
So anyway, Noah took him 120 years. We know from already in Genesis 4 and verse 22, Noah had the use of metal tools. So he didn't have, uh, you know, wooden mallets to put this together. But more importantly, Noah had the help of God in putting this ark together. As we look over this piece here, these chapters, we've come to chapter 7 here. What Noah saw was essentially, as we said, Noah looks at the ark and he says, when I look at this ark, I see the provision of God. God did not have to tell me to make an ark. He didn't have to give all the dimensions and so forth like that, but God gave that to me like a gift, like a provision, and it was that. Fortunately, he's not arguing with God. He's not saying, you know, I don't like the shape of this ark. He didn't say, I don't think it's comfortable enough. (laughs) He says he, he was just happy. He was content with what God had provided for him. And what made Noah the most fulfilled, the most happy during these 120 years when he's building this ark is the fact that he did it together with God. This was a joint project between God and Noah. And that was a wonderful thing. He was content with God. He was content with working with God. He was content with what God had provided for him. And that's a picture for us, Noah, there in Hebrews 13.5, where it says, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So the spirit of, you know, I wish I had that house, or that spouse, or that car, or that job, or that money, or that health, or those looks, or whatever, that sends two messages to God, that spirit of covetousness. Number one, because Hebrews 13 says, be content with such things as you have, it means that when we have the spirit of covetousness, we say to God, we're not happy with such things as God has provided for us. The second message it says in Hebrews 13.5, because it tells us the greatest possession of what we have is this statement that he said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, which means that when we have the spirit of covetousness, the message that we're sending to God is that your presence with me, that's not enough. That's not enough to keep me happy. I need something or someone more. So Noah thought of all those years of building the ark. Now, Noah preached his sermon to a lost world. Of course, he preached with words, but he preached the loudest with his hammer. Think about that. Every time Noah would swing that hammer, Noah preached his sermon. What sermon was he preaching with the swinging of his hammer? Every time Noah would swing his hammer, he was saying that he was taking God seriously. Noah was preaching that what God said he was going to do when he was going to judge the world and everyone had sinned, therefore worthy of judgment, Noah was taking that seriously. And every time, with every swing of Noah's hammer, he was preaching, I'm taking God seriously about judgment, and so should you. That was his message. And Noah was preaching that when God said that there's only one way to be saved, and that this great judgment was coming, and that way was by repenting of sin and going into the ark, with every swing of Noah's hammer, he was preaching that message. He was saying, I'm taking God seriously about salvation, and so should you. 
And every time that a lost person saw Noah swing his hammer, that lost person saw Noah's sermons on judgment and salvation. So the swings of Noah's hammer were speaking louder than Noah's words. Now, how about us? What's our swing of our hammer? What's the swing of our hammer that preaches louder than our words? Every time we hear a joke about hell, every time we hear a joke about the Lord Jesus, and we refuse to laugh, and we say, as one Christian told me yesterday who was working for a man who tells jokes about the Lord, and she takes her stand and she says, that's not funny, that's offensive. Every time she does that, every time we do that, we're like Noah swinging our hammer. Every time we separate ourselves from sin, we're like Noah, we're swinging our hammer. Every time we take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ, like Noah did, we swing our hammer. Reminds me when I used to go to Japan once a year and we have these dinners, these Japanese businessmen who would get together and these Japanese businessmen would never, never go inside of a church. And I knew that. And so I loved the opportunity and I wanted to have dinner with them and to have what they called the after five meeting. That's what they call it in Japan. That's because that after five meeting is when you talk friend to friend. And that's when I would have the ability to talk to them about the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the after five meeting in Japan is also the time when the liquor flows. And, you know, they don't have very much body weight. So, I mean, you know, that, that kind of saturates through them pretty fast. They get drunk pretty easily. And so they would always say to me, Thomasan, drink sake. They'd always say like that, you know. And I'd say, no, thank you. And then they would push me more. Thomasan, drink sake. And so then I would say, Bible say, give strong drink to him that's ready to perish. Frankly speaking, your company is not that bad. <laughs> I would say that. I don't feel like I'm ready to perish. <laughs> anyway, so the next time we get together, they would say, Oh, Thomasan, Christian, Christian, don't drink sake. So Noah swung his hammer. Okay, now verse 1, it says here, The Lord said, Come thou. Verse 1 really is a very momentous time because it's the time that has come. From verse 1, the sermon has stopped. The preaching has stopped. Noah has stopped swinging his hammer. And before that, every time that the lost heard Noah swing his hammer, they knew that the opportunity to be saved was still open for them. It was still available for them. But there was a day, and that's what we're coming to here. That's where we're at in verse 1. There was a day when Noah's hammer stopped swinging and he stopped preaching. And that was the time when the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark. That was the time when the door of opportunity to be saved was closing. And that was the time when God was showing his faithfulness to Noah. And so he says, Come thou into the ark. 120 years This is the first recorded word that we have where God says to Noah to break this time from when he first commissioned him to make the ark to now when he's finished. And he breaks this period, this chapter of building the ark now. And now he's starting to a new chapter coming into the ark. And he breaks it with the word come. He did not say go. That's a different word. He did not say go into the ark. But God used the word come into the ark. Come is a wonderful word. It's a wonderful word. When we think of the word come, 
there are two very important messages that come from the word come. First, when you consider the difference between go and come, the word come is a word of invitation. It's a word of in, invitation. Invitation. And now, there are these two words that you don't see that are always implied when you have the word come. Now, if I was talking to a little kid, just pose me, and I want the kid to be with me, what do I say? Do I say, go to me when I'm talking to the kid, or do I say, come to me? I'd never say, go to me. I always say, come to me. Those are the two words. Those are the two words that are missing. They're always implied when you have the word come. You always have those two words, to me, come to me. If I say, come home, I mean, come home to me. And that's why Matthew eleven twenty eight is a paramount verse in the Bible. It's a key verse in the Bible where the Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, those three words go together. Come unto me. And those three words are the message of the Bible. That's God's message that permeates the whole Bible through and through. Those three words. The Bible does not say, come to a religion, come to a denomination, come to a church, come to a doctrine of belief. The Bible's message is clear. The Bible reverberates from Genesis, where we are now, all the way to Revelation with the message of Matthew eleven twenty-eight, where the Lord Jesus Christ said, come unto me. Now, this is the first time in the Bible that the word come is used, this come, this invitation. This is the first time. It's going to be used over 500 times in the Bible in the context of God saying, come unto me. Because the word come is an invitation word. It means that every person has a choice to make. Either he will choose to come to God or he will choose to go away from God. And that's why the word come is so often used in the Bible, because it emphasizes the choice of it all. Verse 1, it's not just a general come invitation, but it's a very personal come invitation. That's why it says, come thou unto me. That's a personal invitation. When the Lord Jesus Christ taught us to pray, in what we call the Lord's Prayer, he taught us to accept God's invitation and say the words in Matthew 6:10 thy will be done Tom today you talked about Noah and how he was called by God from inside the ark to be saved I talked to a lot of people who are okay with coming to God to get to heaven but not okay with coming to Jesus as God can a person come to God to get a hold of heaven without coming to Jesus as God Oh, yeah, that's a very good question. And there are so many, especially among the Jewish people, who want to get to heaven, and they're okay with coming to God to get to heaven, but they're not okay with coming to Jesus as God to get to heaven. You know, the verse that tells us so clearly that we, that there, that, that there is a heaven and there is a place of God's house is the famous Psalm 23, where the last verse says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
So there you see there is a house of the Lord, and it's possible, as David said, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But the question is, how do we get to that house of the Lord forever? And what is the house of the Lord? And so what we know now from John 14 is that the Lord Jesus Christ made it so clear for us when he described that house, that house of the Lord, as his Father's house. He said, in my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there ye may be also. So what he's saying here by way of the principle is that that heaven is a place where he is, where he is, and he describes that to go to heaven is to want to be with him, because he says that where I am, there ye may be also. Heaven is a place that is prepared for those who want to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. He said in John 5, 39 through 40, search the scriptures for in them ye think ye have eternal life, but they are they which testify of me and ye will not come to me that ye might have life. What's he saying here? He's saying that if you take the Bible in and of itself, and you think that you can find eternal life in the Bible without the Lord Jesus Christ, a person who thinks that is terribly wrong, because he says the scriptures, the scriptures are those that testify of the Lord Jesus Christ. They reveal the Lord Jesus Christ. They disclose him. And then he says that the scriptures, therefore, showing who he is, give the means by way we can come to him. So he says, if you will not come to him through the scriptures, you won't have life. And that's what he meant when he says, and you will not come to me that you might have life. And then he said in John 14, 6, speaking about heaven, speaking about the way to heaven, speaking about the truth, about how to get to heaven, speaking about the eternal life that is in heaven. He says, and Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. In other words, no lost Jewish person, no lost Muslim person, no lost Buddhist person, no lost animist person, no man comes to the Father. And of course, the Father is what we've been talking about here when we speak about the Father's house and the house of the Lord forever. No man comes unto the Father but by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is central. He is central. This is what Paul meant when he said in Colossians 1.18, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So we are not right with God. We are not in sync with heaven unless in all things we see the Lord Jesus Christ as having the preeminence, as having the central stage, as having the focus on him. This is what God meant when he said in Psalm 2, 6, that he said, yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Who is that king that he set upon his holy hill of Zion? 
That king is the one who was on a cross who had for his title over his head the king of the Jews. And where was that title made? That was on a holy hill of Zion. And what was the name of that holy hill of Zion? It was called Calvary. That holy hill in Jerusalem, that holy hill of Zion was Calvary. And so what happens here is when he says, I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion, it's referring back to Isaiah 53, where it says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And when he was on that cross, it was the father who was bruising him. And when Pilate put the sign over him that says the king of the Jews, and what the the, the Jewish people then revolted against, and they said, no, say that he said he was the king of the Jews. But then Pilate said, no, what I have written, I have written, and it's going to stand this way, the king of the Jews. And really, it was written in heaven, the king of the Jews, because this was God setting his king upon his holy hill of Zion. And what is so remarkable about that is that the holy, the, the king on the holy hill of Zion was dying for his subjects, was cleansing them of their sins, was making them, translating them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, was taking their destination and crossing out where it said hell and writing instead heaven. That's the king. That's the leader. And that's the king that God set upon his holy hill of Zion to save his people from their sins. And so then in the same Psalm, in Psalm 2, he goes on and he says, now there's something that you must do. See in Psalm in Psalm 2 verse 6, it's what God did. I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. But in verse 12, it switches and says what you must do, what I must do, what everybody must do. And what must we do? Kiss the son, it says in verse 12. Kiss the son. Why? Lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. So what he's saying here is that our responsibility and who it is that goes to heaven is those that kiss the Lord Jesus Christ, that kiss the son, do him homage, do him worship, and they put their trust in him. Trust that we will not be judged for our sins because he died for our sins. Trust as the family trusted in the Passover blood that they put on the doorpost of the house during the Pesach, and therefore they trusted in that blood that when God said when he sees the blood, he would pass over, so they trusted in the blood, so that we trust in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we will not die in our sins, we will not be judged for our sins, that we will not we will not perish because of our sins, that it's not our works that will save us from hell, but it's his blood and his blood alone, as he said, that the blood, the life of the flesh is in the blood from Leviticus 17.11, and he's given to us upon the altar because it's the blood that makes an atonement for the sin. And when we trust in the blood, when we trust in his blood, we worship him as God, kiss the son, then we go to heaven. Now, he also, it says in that Psalm 2, verse 12, is that there's a wrath involved because if he says, uh, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled, but a little. And that wrath is spoken about in Revelation 6, 16, where it says, and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. You see, there we have it from Psalm 2, verse 6. He's sitting there. I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion, sitting now at the right hand of God. 
And then it says that he, ha- that he has a wrath, a wrath of the Lamb. That's referred to in verse 12 of Psalm 2 when it says his wrath is kindled but a little. But to get in sync with heaven, to be ready for heaven, to be a person that God will then put in heaven is to be in sync with, with the scene that we see in heaven, which is in Revelation 5.12, where we see that, there are, that, that, that all of heaven is saying with a loud voice, worthy, so that's what they call him, worthy is the Lamb, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, that was slain to receive power. So think of these words now. They're saying, worthy is him. And those who go to heaven say on earth, he is worthy. And we say, yes, he should receive all power as he has riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then it says, and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And then the four beasts that were there said, Amen, and worshiped him that liveth forever and ever. So to be in the place where all this is going on, where the Lord Jesus Christ is central, where there's such a strong worship of him, speaking of him as having, yes, 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 he and he should have all the power and the riches and the wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing, and which everyone will say, whether they're in hell or wherein they're in heaven, they will say that when they see it. But to say it now, to surrender the heart to him now, to worship him now, is to be the one in whom the Father is pleased and will bring to heaven to be with him. So is it possible to go to heaven without the Lord Jesus Christ? No, it's not, according to the Bible. Thank you for joining us today. Now, Noah was a preacher of righteousness that we've been studying. And he was moved with fear and compassion, believing God that he was going to bring judgment. And God himself gave mankind space to repent. But Noah carried out God's command and carried out his message of hope and gladness to a lost and dying world. And God needs you to be just like a Noah and carry out his hope and gladness to lost Jewish people around you and be like Noah and help them to get in the ark of salvation that God is providing for the Jewish people and the Gentiles. Call us today, 1-800-247-3051 or go to friendshipwithgod.org, fill out our online form for a free Jewish gift. Thanks for listening and join us again tomorrow.